This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And in today's episode, we have Dinosaur of the Day Buitree Raptor, a bunch of dinosaur news, and we are doing a review of When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth. Spoiler alert. It's not that good. No, it's not. (laughs) I don't think that counts as a spoiler, though. Well, if you were really looking forward to seeing it. (laughs) Oh, true. (laughs) And as always, we'd like to thank all of our Patreon supporters for helping us to keep our podcast going. And this week, we would like to especially thank Lucas and Eli, Wyatt, the Georges family, John Heck, and Lindsay Burns. Yeah, because we love dinosaurs and we love learning about dinosaurs and meeting dinosaur people, but it's because of you guys that we're even able to do this. So thank you very much. Yeah, it really does mean a lot to us. And we couldn't afford to keep this podcast going with all the hosting fees and everything without your support. And if you're interested in our latest audiobook, which we just finished, it is available for everyone in the Spinosaurus level for the first month. And then it will be open for other people to buy on places like Audible after that. So if you're interested, check out our patreon.com page and look at our different reward levels. Yep, and that's at patreon.com slash I know dino. So jumping right into the news, our first story comes from the Canadian Journal of Earth Sciences, and it's all about troodontids, written by Aaron J. Van Der Eest and Philip J. Curry, both a couple of J's that know a lot about troodontids. This one, <laughs> this new troodontid is named Latenevenatrix McMasteray. And Latenevenatrix comes from latens, which is Latin for latent or hiding. And that makes sense because it was hiding in collections for almost a century. (laughs) And also since predators hide before they're attacking. Clever. Yeah. Double whammy there. And then Venatrix is Latin for a female hunter. So when you put it together, you end up with either hiding hunter or latent killer lady something like that (laughs) (laughs) all right interesting yep and then mcmasteray is named after vanderice late mother whose maiden name was mcmaster oh that's nice yeah so latena venatrix 
is known from four individuals, which are made up of mostly fragmentary bones. And they include elements from the skull, jaw, hips, hands, feet, ribs, and vertebrae, although not that many of each of those things. So it's still a pretty partial skeleton, even though there's four individuals. In the U.S., we end up with so much less complete finds than they get in China of all these troodontids. But we have enough to be pretty sure that it's its own species now and genus. The specimens were found in the Dinosaur Park formation, and Latinovenetrix is estimated to be 1.8 meters or 5.9 feet tall, and 3.5 meters or 11.5 feet long, which you may recognize is very large for a troodontid, and it might even be the largest known troodontid at that size. And yet it could hide so well? Sure. Yeah, <laughs> camouflage, plants and stuff. It's like if a lion or a tiger can hide, oh then this can hide. Yeah. <laughs> and that also means that since troodontids are dinonychosaurs, it's also one of the largest quote-unquote raptors. And, you know, troodontids have those little sickle claws on their feet too, but they're smarter than some of the other deinonychosaurs uh -oh. generally. Yeah, they're trouble. Capital T. <laughs> For troodon. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> In the paper, they also revived the genus Stenonychosaurus from Troodon, and they had been synonymized back in the 80s. Van der Rees told Sinews, quote, Troodon formosus has been found from Mexico all the way to Alaska, spanning a 15 million year period, a fantastic and unlikely feat. <laughs> <laughs> And that's one of the things you run into when you have too much lumping, basically, because we know that the average species existence time frame for dinosaurs is like 2 million years, maybe 5 million years, 15 million years, they should have evolved in some way or another. And you just expect to at least have a new species, if not a new genus. So thus the fantastic and unlikely feat. <laughs> we covered this synonymized feature back in episode 36 about Troodon, we mentioned Stenonychosaurus. So you might remember it if you've been listening for like two years now. <laughs> At least 100 episodes. Yeah. Or so. 108. Oh, wow. <laughs> Interestingly, back when they were synonymized, it was Curry as the lead author who synonymized them, and he's one of the authors on this paper. Changed his mind. Yeah. So I think that basically means that he's kind of invalidating his previous article. And he actually kind of quickly started hinting at the fact that there might be a new genus or two hidden in there, but we just didn't have enough data because, like I said, it's very fragmentary. But once they pieced together these different specimens and figured out that they kind of all have the common enough features to count as one genus, then you end up with enough evidence. The other interesting thing is that Stenonychosaurus appears to have a lot in common with Mongolian troodontids, possibly meaning that it may have evolved from an Asian lineage as opposed to one of the North American lineages of troodontids. So if you're a troodontid fan, there might be a new largest troodontid. It's pretty exciting. Woo! <laughs> And next in the news, we have an article that was published in the Archives of Natural History by E.A. Howlett and others, and it's all about the history of Megalosaurus, also known as the Great Lizard of Stonesfield. <laughs> Interesting. 
So Sabrina talked about this a lot back in episode 47, another oldie but goodie, (laughs) when it was the dinosaur of the day. But researchers at the Oxford University Museum of Natural History and Lower Mill Cottage reviewed the history of Megalosaurus and published a new paper all about what they found. So really, most of the history is from a slate quarry in Stonesfield, Oxfordshire. Hence the great lizard. Yes, of Stonesfield. So they recovered a lot of documents like letters and other writings about fossil finds from the quarry. And at first, it seems that they just found small bones. So they have descriptions from the late 1600s in the quarry of these small fossilized bones. That's cool. It's a super long time ago, 1600s for a dinosaur discovery. But much like all the other dinosaur discoveries at that time and before and for another hundred years later, nobody realized they were dinosaur bones. And in this case, it might have partly been because they were small bones, possibly the end of a femur and a tooth. So nothing too compelling in terms of finding a new species, but they did document them. Later, a catalog lists a quote-unquote large bone (laughs) from the mine in 1728. How descriptive. Yeah. And that appears to be the first record, at least from what I found looking through there, about a large bone. So something that you might say like, wow, this is a big animal, something bigger than we have around today. I wonder what's going on there. Then almost 30 years later, a letter from 1757 describing the fossils includes a, quote, prodigious large thigh bone of a quadruped intriguing so we're getting a little closer they're starting to figure out that it's quadrupedal and that it's larger than anything (laughs) you might see in 1750s england it took another 40 years in 1797 when the lectotype was acquired by oxford by sir christopher pegg who was a doctor in anatomy because at the time i don't think there were any paleontologists and Other bones were acquired by other people at Oxford throughout the early 1800s. So they're kind of slowly gathering fossils, didn't really know what to do with them for a while. They were just kind of collecting them as interesting anatomy pieces. They knew it was important. They just didn't know why. Yeah. I mean, it's something new, so you always want to get your hands on it. Well, it's not really new. (laughs) I suppose, yeah. (laughs) Something unknown. (laughs) There were also many letters to William Buckland that were found And Buckland originally published a description without naming it. Why wouldn't you name it? Yeah, well, I mean, this was still early days of paleontology. So, you know, there wasn't a super defined process for it. But Gideon Mantell would later name it Megalosaurus Bucklandi after him. That's nice. So even though he didn't name it, (laughs) he got it named after him. So he didn't miss out. He dodged a bullet. Yeah. (laughs) The paper includes a lot of letters with brief fossil descriptions that are pretty interesting because they're all kind of stumbling around trying to figure out how to describe a dinosaur bone when no one knows what a dinosaur is. You know, it's just like, oh, it's a really big leg bone, or maybe it's related to this animal, or like a huge horse, or like all sorts of interesting ideas. It was interesting because it seemed that William Buckland spent a lot of effort into collecting these fossils for a couple decades. And then at the end of 1849, he just kind of disappears from the scene about megalosaurus at least they couldn't find any records of it 
until 1854, when they found a record of a letter from Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins requesting dimensions of Megalosaurus bones to aid in the construction of the Crystal Palace dinosaurs, specifically their Megalosaurus. And as we've mentioned before, that's still on display. So there's kind of a record going all the way back to the 1600s, if you look at it that way, of kind of the earliest known dinosaurs. Was Buckland the one where people didn't believe it was a dinosaur at first? I'm sure, yeah. Yeah. Because it was pretty controversial. And dinosaur wasn't even named until like another 20 years later by Sir Richard Owen. So maybe that's why he disappears. It gives up for a while. (laughs) It could be. Yeah, and evolution too. In the 1600s all the way through basically all of the 1800s, no one really believed in. And no one had even come up with the idea until Darwin, which was late 1800s. So... It'd be pretty confusing finding these sorts of bones. <laughs> yeah. I Yeah, I can't remember. It would make sense to be Buckland, but I can't remember specifically. I know somebody uh, went to Cuvier, and Cuvier at first was like, no, this is nothing. And then Yeah, Cuvier. Well, they found more letters from Cuvier that they mention in this article when he goes to visit Oxford and look at some of the fossils. But he wasn't that dismissive, it looked like, from these new letters, but... Yeah, they definitely didn't know how to classify him at first. Yeah. So it's pretty interesting. I always think of dinosaurs really emerging in the mid-1800s with Sir Richard Owen naming Dinosauria, but the fact that there were all these like people starting to collect them for like 150 years (laughs) before that, before something was ever actually made of them is fascinating. Mm -hmm. And you think of how in those 150 years... They collected enough material to name one dinosaur, and then how much has been done on dinosaurs in the last 150 years? Yeah. <laughs> Basically, all the other dinosaurs being named. Well, once you have a process and spark an interest. Yeah. Plus tools. Yeah. Speaking of looking for dinosaurs, there's a group of paleontologists from Australia, China, Italy, and Canada that have been working together this summer in Peace Country in Alberta, Canada, and they found a nearly complete hadrosaur. It's unclear if it's a new species. They need to clean it up to know for sure, but they found a nearly complete skull, so that will help. And the hadrosaur wasn't fully grown, but it's still pretty large. The skeleton's in a block of stone that weighs several hundred pounds, and they're going to need to remove it and then take it to a lab. The team's also found a hadrosaur with fossilized skin impressions, so that's pretty cool. Nice. And they did all that in one summer. Yeah, that's pretty productive. I was thinking, compared to... We're just talking about megalosaurus and all that. That's true. (laughs) I'm not sure how common the bones were because it was a slate mine, right? So they were just trying to get out slate and then occasionally they'd be like, oh, what's this thing? They weren't doing the way normal paleontologists do, walking around over wide range of countryside looking for fossils specifically. True. But yeah, definitely a lot faster these days. (laughs) Next, a British documentary crew was filming last month in Glen Rose, Texas, for a new documentary about T-Rex. So part of the project is they're exploring how T-Rex probably couldn't roar, at least not like T-Rex is portrayed as roaring in Jurassic Park. So Chris Packham, who will host the documentary, said that some scientists think that T-Rex made, quote, a very low frequency noise without opening its mouth, end quote, that humans wouldn't have been able to hear. So this is based on how birds and crocodilians sound, modern ones. And we've talked about this before. There was a study actually about how dinosaurs may have cooed like doves that came out last year. Small dinosaurs, not big dinosaurs. Yeah. 
because I'm looking forward to watching the documentary when it comes out. I know it comes out in Britain later this year. I don't know about the US. Yeah, this has been a really popular topic lately. I keep seeing new articles like the, what do they call it? The zombie science or something like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> where social media just kind of re- brings up the same thing over and over again on like a repeated cycle, but there isn't really any new information about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's new in that there's going to be a documentary. Yeah, but... that's true. So probably some new interviews and stuff like that, at least. Yeah. And last, Atlas Obscura published a great post about dinosaurs of roadside America. So John... Margulies, a photographer, spent almost 40 years documenting roadside America, and then this year, one year after he died, he was 76, the Library of Congress made his photos available online. There's over 11,000 photos, many of them are of dinosaurs, so these include a pink brontosaurus at the entrance of the parking lots of Florida's Gatorland, a stegosaurus outside a town hall on Colorado State Highway 64, a theropod next to a windmill at Wacky Golf in South Carolina, a brontosaurus that has steps leading up to it in Dinosaur Park in Michigan, a brontosaurus with a slide on its back in Bedrock City, Arizona, two dinosaurs by a castle in Santa's Village in New Hampshire, an allosaur in Dinosaur World in Arkansas, and the Waldrug dinosaur in South Dakota. It's a sauropod, and actually Garrett and I have driven past that one. Yeah, it's really big. Mm-hmm. These are all really big, but (laughs) all the photos, they have clear blue skies and no people in them. And it's to, quote, celebrate the vernacular of America's highways and byways and elevate its quirks to a kind of high art, end quote. So he wanted to have timeless photos. And interestingly, he didn't care for nostalgia. Apparently, some buildings were knocked down just days after he took photos of them. Hmm. But it's interesting. Took it 40 years He's capturing roadside America, and that includes a bunch of dinosaurs. Yeah, that's funny. And now on to our review of When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth, which was an interesting movie. (laughs) That's a nice way of putting it. (laughs) And spoiler alert, we're going to go through a lot of the plot. So if you haven't seen it yet, even though it's 47 years old... (laughs) You might want to go watch it before listening to our review, but it's pretty bad. So I don't really recommend that you do that. You're probably better off just listening to us talk about the dinosaurs in it and what they got right and what they got wrong. It was originally released in October of 1970 in the UK, which I would not have guessed because as far as I know, most of the actors are American and it is very much from the 70s. It's pretty obvious when you watch the movie. Well, the men have 70s-like facial hair. Yeah, because apparently in the 70s, you didn't have to change your hair much if you were going to be in a movie, regardless of what time period it was supposed to portray. Although it's interesting, because it would have been filmed in 1969, but I guess by then you've got the 70s hairstyle. Yeah, you already had a lot of beards and stuff going on. And it kind of worked, because all the men in the movie are supposed to be cavemen, Mm. so all the big beards kind of fit in. Yeah, but it was a specific type of beard and mustache yeah well the main thing was the mustache because there were some guys that didn't have a beard they just had like a huge mustache yeah. like that doesn't look like a caveman that just looks like a 70s dude but yeah anyway this movie they made it because there was a movie called one million years bc which was really popular and featured some stop-motion dinosaurs that apparently people liked so then they made this sort of spin-off type thing and we haven't seen one million years bc it doesn't have as much dinosaur action in it And obviously, it's not in the title, so, you know. But both of them feature dinosaurs and people, 
So it's kind of weird because in 1 million years BC, that seems a little early for people and really late for dinosaurs. <laughs> and then in this movie, there's no real explanation of where they are. Maybe they're supposed to be on another planet or something. I don't know. Because it says the Earth. Yeah, good point. But there's no moon. They talk about how there's the moon hadn't formed yet, which is pretty weird because the moon had been around the whole time dinosaurs were around. So. Maybe it's an alternate Earth. Yeah, sure. That would make more sense. Yeah. <laughs> it might help explain some of the weird dinosaurs that were going on, too. So... Getting right into it, the movie starts out and there's a tribe of cavemen and cave women, and they just are all brunettes except for the blonde ones and the blonde ones they sacrifice to the sun god so they have three blonde women and they're going to sacrifice them. You don't really know why because there's no English in the whole movie. There's no any real language in no. the movie. It's just a made up language. Yeah. There's either a narrator or like some words you can read in the very beginning, which gives you that, it tells you about the moon not existing yet and whatever. But after that, it's like just a bunch of make-believe words and you can kind of figure out a couple of them. Because they say them so often. Yeah. <laughs> but then other times it sounds like somebody just made up a word and then everybody else just keeps repeating it back and forth. And you're like, shouldn't there be some sort of change? Because depending on their perspective, you'd expect like a slightly different language, but no. Anyway. It's kind of unwatchable in parts because of that, because it's just so boring. It's like watching a movie in a foreign language without subtitles with really bad acting. No, it's more like uh, watching a couple toddlers talking gibberish to each other. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's kind of cute, though. I but, feel like that but not as cute. <laughs> yeah. So there are these <laughs> three women who are going to get sacrificed, and basically one of them escapes, and her name is Sana. And it takes a long time to figure out that's her name because it's just one of the words mixed in with a bunch of other gibberish. We figured it out when we turned on the subtitles thinking oh, maybe right. the subtitles would help us know what they're saying, but it doesn't. No. Well, it did it helped us figure out their names oh, that's because true. it would say like Sana in parentheses and then like the other words that she was saying and you're like, oh, that's Sana. That's her name. So she escapes from the ceremony, which includes this really awful looking fake crystal skull and a bunch of people that are supposedly like banging on skulls, but they're not even hitting the skulls. You can like see that they're not touching them. <laughs> so it's like really cheap looking. So another tribe goes out or maybe they're already out fishing or something. It's unclear. Yeah. And they kind of get Sana out of the water and bring her back to their village where she falls in love. Not, well, I don't think she really falls in love. One of the guys falls in love with her. <laughs> well, he helped rescue her. His yeah. name is Tara. And it's one of those really awful boat sequences where they're going out and they have these like be real segments of huge waves in the sea and then they show them on a boat and it's sunny out and then somebody's obviously just like throwing a bucket of water on them. <laughs> I will say though, it was decent special effects for the 70s not the water though no. some of the dinosaur stuff is pretty good but yeah. that water effect was just so terrible <laughs> it was like they didn't even get the lighting right it was like a dark stormy sea and then it would be like it looks like off the coast of la <laughs> with somebody throwing a bucket of water on them <laughs> so when they get back to their village Terra's village with sana there's a big old plesiosaur that's kind of on the beach kind of like gulliver's travels anyway <laughs> They're tying up this plesiosaur. You don't know it's a plesiosaur at first. 
It's not no. obvious. It kind of looks like a sauropod because it's completely on the beach and it's got a very sauropod-like neck, but it does have sharp teeth. So we were thinking, oh, it's like one of those weird predatory sauropods like you sometimes see in these old stop motion movies. But turns out it's supposed to be some sort of aquatic animal because it's got big weird flippers that sort of have claws on the end. So kind of weird. But they are trying to tie it down and then it breaks free and then they keep trying to scare it away with fire, but they fail. And then it makes it into the middle of their village, but then they kind of burn it alive with all this other fire and then they eat it. Like end up cooking it afterwards. So I guess that didn't cook it all the way. They had to cook it some more. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty good stop motion with that plesiosaur though. I was pretty impressed. Mm -hmm. And they did a pretty seamless job with the people around it and it, you know, the blue screen effect and everything. It wasn't real obvious where the borders of the people were versus where the background plesiosaur was. So they did a pretty good job with that. I think it's really boring for a while. There's like sort of there's a lot of talking going on, but you can't really tell what they're talking about because we don't speak made up language. <laughs> Eventually, Sana's tribe shows up like a half hour later and tries to get her back. So she runs away and she kind of hides in a tree and all these guys are running around after her. And eventually one of them gets eaten by a snake. Or just killed by a snake, not really eaten by a snake. And then they go up to a cave and there's a chasmosaurus looking thing in there that runs out and kills like two or three of them mm -hmm. by just poking them a little bit. They have like these little tiny wounds on their sides and then they like immediately die, which is kind of weird. Well, if they had poked it, they would have died. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. It was just like, it looked like such a small little wound that they got. Mm. They could have made it a much more exciting battle going on and then one of them gets chased by the chasmosaurus and then kind of hides and the chasmosaurus keeps running and falls off a cliff yeah <laughs> so that's how they defeat that dinosaur and that was pretty well animated too i was pretty impressed it wasn't quite as good as the plesiosaur but it was still pretty cool so eventually sana runs away and she hides in a giant egg like really 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 giant way bigger than any dinosaur egg ever probably like 10 times bigger than the biggest dinosaur egg probably the size of a tent yeah you could have fit at least three human adults in it and she fits in like half of an egg because it she goes in one that's already cracked open because i guess the dinosaur has come out of it and gone away and she can still completely fit inside half of the eggshell and then another one of the eggs hatches and apparently it thinks that they're siblings or something because mm -hmm. it's really nice to her and that sauropod looking thing is by far the coolest dinosaur in the whole movie because it's like a little cutesy dinosaur and it's really well animated mm -hmm. it looks really great i think it's meant to be carnivorous you think so yeah interesting so another carnivorous sauropod going on then it's a little bit unclear but maybe that one grows up or maybe a different one comes back which is like the mama and thinks that Santa is her baby from being in the nest or something. But there's a really large one that looks like a giant iguana. It's got those little spines down its back. Other than that, though, it's sort of like a sauropod, but its neck is a lot shorter. It's kind of a totally different proportion mm -hmm. than the baby one. The baby one looks way cooler. Was that one stop motion? Because I know at one point it looked like they had a lizard. Yeah, that one stop motion. Okay. But at one point there was a lizard with something around its neck to look like a frill to make it look like a dinosaur. Yeah. Then the most of the rest of the movie is Sana running and hiding and eventually 
Tara kind of joins in in the running and hiding. <laughs> so they're kind of doing it together. And at one point, there's a battle between two quote unquote dinosaurs, <laughs> which are <laughs> completely obviously just lizards, like regular living lizards. On one of them, they have somehow secured a fake frill and stegosaurus plates too, yeah. the same one. <laughs> that was pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. And then the other one, they put a bunch of horns on its head. So they're like lizards and they're just kind of chomping on each other, sort of. You see their tongues every once in a while. Yeah. I wonder if they would allow that kind of thing in this day and age in movies. Because they're basically having animals fight mm. and filming it. I feel like PETA would have something to say about that. Or giving it those sorts of costumes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they look, it's weird too, because they use stop motion for almost all the movie. And then randomly, there's just these two things that are obviously just regular lizards that they throw in the mix. Well, that's not the first time we've seen that. No, but usually they kind of do one or the other. It's but a weird maybe combination. It made more sense financially to do it that way. Probably. Yeah, there weren't any people in the scene. So maybe they figured they don't really care exactly where they move and they don't have to react to people. They're just fighting each other. So it doesn't really matter, you know, what exactly they do. Mm -hmm. So that was just super random, though. Like it, it didn't do anything. They just cut to it for a second and then went back to the sort of plot. Eventually, Tara and Sana get caught by this tribe that's been pursuing Sana for a super long time. And she gets saved by her dinosaur, either sibling or parent, whatever it's supposed to be. By the sauropod. Yeah. <laughs> but Tara gets dragged back to wherever he was, and then they're going to kill him for, you know, harboring a fugitive, basically. But then something goes on with the sun and all these crabs come out and the crabs in this movie kill more people than all the dinosaurs combined there's like four or five people that get killed by these crabs mm -hmm. and they're just they are very large crabs yeah they're like human-sized crabs i guess but none of the dinosaurs managed to wipe out so many people i guess the crabs are faster <laughs> i guess so and then sana shows up and saves tara at the last second and they hop on a boat because the storm is getting crazy and they flee in a boat and they end up landing on a hundred foot plus plateau weirdly it's like they wash up on top of a mountain very smoothly yeah <laughs> and it's them and another man and woman who i don't really remember what their role was i think the woman stood up for sauna at some point but it's yeah. unclear if they're the only people left on this island or not. Yeah, it kind of seemed like an Adam Eaton Evie kind of vibe, except there were four of them. So, I don't know. So, I guess a happy ending? Yeah, Yeah, kind of. Pretty abrupt. Mm -hmm. Which you expected. You were like, I wonder if that's going to be the ending, because these 70s movies always just no, end not, abruptly. Not just 70s. A lot of movies, up until more recently, had very abrupt endings. Yeah, and it did. I guess that's how books often end a little more abruptly than movies, so it kind of makes sense. So overall, the movie, pretty bad. <laughs> the stop motion dinosaurs were good. Yes. I liked it a little bit better than Tammy and the T-Rex because the dialogue in this movie, which was completely unintelligible, was better than the just offensive and terrible dialogue that was in Tammy and the T-Rex. Yeah, I don't really remember. I think I've blocked that movie out. <laughs> I really liked 
The Lost World a lot better. The yes. silent film from 1925. Yeah, because you knew more that was going on because every once in a while they give you a little bit of text to tell you what they were well, saying. And it was a more complicated story. Yeah, it was a much better story. And a lot more dinosaurs. Yep. Despite being 40 to 50 years earlier, there was more stop motion. The stop motion wasn't quite as good, but for its time, it was obviously way, way better. Mm-hmm. There is some nudity in the movie. Apparently, the woman who's the protagonist, Sana, is a Playboy bunny. So, you know, they had to work that in somehow. She's not the only one you see nude. Yeah, that's true. Just in general, no one's wearing much clothing. So, (laughs) yeah, apparently they're wearing dinosaur skin. Yeah. Which wasn't at all apparent. We had to look that up. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't understand that at all. But one cool thing is Jurassic Park made a reference to this movie. We just found out. Yeah. So the visitor center has that big banner that says, when dinosaurs ruled the earth. And that's the title of this movie, obviously. And you might also remember that as the last scene in Jurassic Park where the T-Rex is roaring and then that banner falls on it. Yep. Which is most likely because this movie is seen as a good example of stop motion. So it makes sense that since they were obviously very interested in animating dinosaurs, they would reference another movie that took some strides into improving that. So all in all, not worth watching. (laughs) Maybe clips on YouTube of the stop motion. Yeah, most of the stop. I think if you combined all the stop motion scenes, you'd probably end up with about three or four minutes of movie. If you're going to watch it, I would recommend skipping most of the middle part where Sana gets back to the village and they're just talking back and forth and gibberish. It's like, I have no idea why they even bothered including that because it's just awful. seemed like they just needed to fill some time or something. But yeah, some of the stop motion is pretty cool. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. 
Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Buitri Raptor, which was a request from Dinosaur4602 via YouTube. So thanks. It was a dromaeosaurid that lived in the Cretaceous in what is now Argentina, and four skeletons were found in 2004 in Patagonia by a team led by Sebastian Apesteguia and including Peter Makovicki during an excavation. It was described and named in 2005 by Makovicki, Apesteguia, and Federico Agnolin. The type species is Buitriraptor gonzalezorum, and the name means vulture raider. It was found in the fossil site La Buitrera, the vulture roost. So that makes sense. <laughs> That's intense. Yeah. The species name is in honor of Fabian and Jorge Gonzalez, who helped excavate and prepare the fossils. Only two of the four specimens have been described. At the time that Buitriraptor lived, South America was an isolated continent, and discovery of Buitriraptor showed scientists that dromaeosaurs lived in more areas of the world than they previously thought. It was the first evidence of dromaeosaurs in South America. And it showed that they appeared around 180 million years ago before Pangaea broke apart, though later studies found that they didn't actually appear until 160 million years ago. And some scientists think that dromaeosaurs started in Laurasia and then migrated to Gondwana in the Cretaceous. Since dromaeosaurs from the southern hemisphere have characteristics that northern dromaeosaurs do not have. Anyway, Buitriraptor shows mosaic evolution. It has dromaeosaurid, troodontid, and avian traits. It had a bird-like pelvis, wing-like forelimbs, and a large hollow wishbone. It's similar to Ronavis, which previously had been considered a primitive bird, but now is considered potentially to be a dromaeosaur. Buitriraptor is estimated to be about 5 feet or 1.5 meters long and weigh about 6.6 pounds or 3 kilograms. It had an elongated head and small teeth compared to the height of its skull and the teeth were between 0.6 to 4.6 millimeters tall. It's a little guy with little teeth. Yeah. (laughs) It had long, slender jaws, which was good for preying on small lizards and mammals that hide among rocks, and its teeth were recurved and angled towards the back of the mouth, so they could have been like hooks to keep prey in its mouth. The teeth were also serrated, so that would have been good for cutting into flesh, and they had grooves on the surface of the crown. They had a lot of teeth, about 25, which is more than other Laurasian dromaeosaurids that had between 11 and 16 teeth. And they had a sickle claw on the second digit of its foot, which was short and broad and probably used for pinning prey. Which is not surprising, because it's considered to be a dromaeosaurid. Yep. They also had long forelimbs with three fingers in each hand. The fingers were proportionately shorter than other dromaeosaurids, and each finger was about the same length, unlike other dromaeosaurids whose second digits were longer. Interesting. Long forelimbs, but short fingers. (laughs) Yeah. And they also had an elongated body and shallow rib cage. They may have had feathers because Microraptor and Sinorthosaurus, who are relatives, did have feathers, but no feathers of Buitriraptor have actually been found. Buitriraptor also was possibly prey for larger animals like Mapusaurus and Giganotosaurus, who lived around the same time and place. I'm surprised they say that it would have been prey for such large animals being so small. Maybe it was easy prey. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. And our fun fact of the day is that with the exception of sauropods, most herbivorous dinosaurs don't show signs of pneumaticity, 
which is another way of saying air sacs invading their bones or quote-unquote hollow bones. They weren't nearly as big. Yeah, I mean, that's one possibility. It could mean that they didn't have air sacs at all, and that would fit better with the traditional classification of Sauriscians, including theropods and sauropods with pneumaticity, versus Ornithischians being in a separate group which largely didn't have pneumaticity. But complicating that is the fact that pterosaurs also have pneumaticity, so that would likely mean that they have a common ancestor to both all of dinosaurs and pterosaurs that had hollow bones and possibly those fancy air sacs for breathing. <laughs> and then that would mean that it got lost in Ornithischians. But that seems like a weird thing to lose since it's pretty awesome to have these air sacs. It makes your breathing so much more effective. I wish I had these air sacs and could breathe like a dinosaur. It's pretty amazing. You're basically <laughs> breathing in all the time. You're always getting fresh air no matter if you're breathing in or out. It's super mm. awesome. Another possibility is that these air sacs evolved independently in pterosaurs and dinosaurs, which I guess is possible. Seems a little bit unlikely, but... It happens. Conversion evolution happens. Yeah, it does. And then another possibility is that Ornithischians did have air sacs, but they just didn't invade their bones. See, when you say in things like they invaded, that makes it sound like a bad thing. <laughs> well, I mean, if you're on the end of wanting like very strong bones, then it's a bad thing. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, basically when you look at some of these vertebrae, you'll see gaps in the vertebrae where the air sacs actually pushed into them, which seems crazy because the way our lungs are, it doesn't invade our bones. You know, it's like they're inside a rib cage and I guess maybe it changes the shape of the ribs a little bit. So maybe it does invade those bones a little bit. But in dinosaurs, there are all these little air sacs or air sacs that were really flexible that actually poke down into the tail and the neck and all over the place. And it actually put little holes into the bone so you can see this pneumaticity. And it tends to increase in animals like titanosaurs over time. So sometimes they actually get classified by how much pneumaticity they have, how many hollow bones are showing up. That makes me think of those dinosaurs that are made out of a bunch of balloons. Oh, yeah, it is kind of similar, I guess. <laughs> so it's still unclear why Ornithischians don't have these air sacs invading their bones, making quote-unquote hollow bones, but hopefully we'll find some more fossils and get a better answer to this. It'd be really cool if we could get a fossilized air sac somehow, and we could actually confirm with, like, undeniable precision what kind of air sacs they had. That'd be awesome. Then you can really compare it to those balloon animal dinosaurs. I was thinking birds, but yeah. That too. <laughs> Maybe birds first, then the balloon dinosaurs. Yeah. It's really important. I, it is to some of us. <laughs> <laughs> and that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. If you want to join our growing awesome community of dinosaur enthusiasts, check out our page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.